An election is coming. Last Thursday's triple-decker by-election results were perhaps the last major democratic exercise in Britain as we enter the final stages of this government's tenure. And you don't have to look very closely at the results to find things that will worry politicians of all stripes. Welcome to the iPodcast, direct from the House of Commons, where we'll dive into what these results tell us about the next general election, which is due any time in the next 17 months. Joining us to pick through the results is our chief political correspondent, Richard Vaughan, and politics reporter, Poppy Wood. Now, if you haven't caught up on all of the political coverage on inews.co.uk, the results were as follows. The Conservatives narrowly held the seat, vacated by Boris Johnson in Uxbridge and Royslip. Labour's campaign propelled the UK's new youngest MP to victory in Selby and Ainsty in Yorkshire. And the Liberal Democrats took back the seat of Somerton and Froome that they lost all the way back in 2015. Let's go first to Uxbridge. There was a lot of commentary around the fact that this may have been Labour's to lose. So what went wrong? Lots of discussion now as a post-mortem about the role of ULES or ULES, however you want to call it, the ultra-low emission zone around London. How much did that have to play? So you're right, it was widely expected that Rishi Zunak might be facing a triple by-election loss, all of those three seats up for grabs from various political parties, Labour and the Lib Dems. In the end, it went to the Tory party again. You know, Boris Johnson had recently resigned from his seat and there were kind of signals that, you know, the constituency had sort of Boris Johnson fatigue and were a little bit wary of the whole Partygate scandal, wanted a fresh slate. In the end, it didn't end up happening that way and the Tory candidate was elected against expectations. But it started to shift a couple of weeks before the election itself and ULES, the ultra-low emission zone expansion into the wider areas around London, became a sort of sticking point. And after the result, which the Tory party clung on to by a very narrow majority of just under 500 votes, was seen as a sort of referendum on one single issue, which was that ultra-low emission zone expansion. A lot of local voters very upset that it was coming towards them next month. You know, as a post-mortem, Labour has signalled its loss in this seat was for that particular reason. Keir Starmer said, you know, we need to sort of revisit this. And, and Sadiq Khan, the L- London mayor who's been pushing for this ULES expansion, has been urged now to rethink, you know, what's going on there. So it's kind of post-fact analysis, post-match analysis, wishful thinking from Labour. That was the sole reason why this was going on. And it has it has the potential to to expand into this sort of big green reckoning moment for both the Labour and the Tories. But actually what happened there was, you know, Labour hadn't really got a, a strong enough opinion on, on ULEZ before this result. They kind of belatedly said, oh, yeah, we're, we're not sure about ULEZ either. And that wasn't really enough. It didn't really cut mm. through. So that's what went wrong in Uxbridge. What happens now is, you know, Tory party saying, well, look, this is a big victory for us. It shows that it's not a clear defeat of the next general election for us. We still have a few sticking points that we need to explore. Labour's sort of trying to pin the blame a little bit on ULEZ saying that this was the major reason why what what went wrong there. Um, But it's a little bit more complicated than that. I think what's also fascinating is how we are all still talking about Uxbridge and how Uxbridge became the kind of story of the by-elections on Friday when Labour managed to do 
fantastically well. I mean, not to speak just for Labour, but to, to look at it in the round. Labour did fantastically well when it came to Selby and Anstey. And they did manage to reduce what was, a, I think, a 7,000 vote majority down to little less than 500 in Uxbridge in a seat that they've never, ever held. Mm. So it's kind of fascinating that we're, we are focusing on this. And as Poppy says, it has acted as a kind of catalyst for re-examining the whole green agenda now, because mm. obviously the Tories see this as a bit of a bit of a wedge issue. And maybe we'll get into that later. But it's worth remembering that Uxbridge and West Royslip, despite being a kind of outer London seat, it is a very much kind of Middlesex seat. And these are kind of, you know, people with detached or semi-detached houses, driveways with cars sitting on them. So this became a real kind of mm. trigger policy situation. Well, you mentioned there that we're probably not being fair enough on Labour, you know, if we focus on Oxbridge, as you say, a lot more complicated than that. Overall, if you're on Keir Starmer's team, are you happy? I think you are happy. Um, and they did kind of see this coming they they started to row back on the on the confidence two or three weeks before maybe and certainly with days to go the Tories were very much signaling that they they were confident mm. about it and it, it was still tight but I think Starmer will be happy I mean Selby and Anstey was a fantastic result for them I mean that's an absolute kicking for the Tories a 20-something percent swing, the second biggest swing from Tory to Labour since the Second World War. So it's huge stuff. It is fascinating that we're still talking about Uxbridge mm. because everyone just thought that it was going to be a clean sweep in terms of a defeat for, for the Tories mm. with the Lib Dems getting Somerton and Froome and then Labour picking up these two seats. And it hasn't happened. And that does come down to the expectation management side of things. And I think they kind of lost that battle and allowed the Tories to try and, you know, squeeze in there and start dictating what the messaging was on Friday morning. And we're still talking about it now. Well, we touched on on the potential for a rethinking of the kind of green agenda following the backlash to um, you, Les. I'm going to go for you, Les. You guys can call it whatever you like. It's <laughs> this is We're going to need a whole other podcast on the <laughs> ULES, ULES, the real referendum here. But what other kind of wedge issues were there on show? these by-elections. I mean, we know that things like the Rwanda policy has been a real touchstone for the Tories, very controversial. Rishi Sunak's made small boats overall a big deal. How much did those kind of narratives play into these elections or was it around much smaller local issues? I think what the Uxbridge result shows is that it was about the local issues, but those wider wedge issues still do play a part. And, you know, we have to be careful not to compare too closely a by-election result, which is essentially a local vote, to a general election, which will be much more symbolic of what the party stands for and what key policies they're driving. The net zero targets will be a major sort of fallout from this by-election result. But beyond that, we are still looking at Rwanda. I mean, there was apparently some local opposition in areas such as Selby and Summerton to high immigration levels and sort of support for the Rwanda deal, despite how the election results might have turned out in both of those results. So it is showing that wider, bigger policy matters do still play a footprint in local areas. And Rishi Sunak is expected to capitalise on that. I mean, the timing of this is, is really interesting because we got the election results on the Friday the day that Parliament broke up for its summer recess. We now have six-week wait, basically, before Richard Sunak is expected to come back in in September and do a bit of a reset ahead of the party conferences. So it's it's a time for them to sort of reassess where their current policies are standing, 
where they want to drive up the rhetoric in the autumn. And they'll be doing a lot of sort of focus grouping, litmus testing. Bit of soul searching. Bit of soul searching. But it looks like he's going to really go in on the Rwanda policy and stopping the boats. Although, you know, with the proviso that he doesn't really know what that means at the moment, he keeps saying that it doesn't necessarily mean reducing that number to zero. It means, you know, tackling it in whichever way they can. But that's not a prescriptive policy but you know it's it's expected that that's going to be a, a main driver they're also expected the Tory party to go in on crime other areas where they can seem to be sort of the tough bold party in opposition to Labour potentially faltering on what their policies actually are and to create those really strong dividing lines because I think a lot of voters at the moment are a little bit you know confused as to where they stand it was interesting that Sir John Curtis the political polling expert was saying that Brexit is no longer really the dividing line in, in which way people are going to vote. It's much more complicated than that. And both parties really need to draw up what their vision is over the summer. Yeah, it's interesting. I went for coffee with a cabinet minister and they said they were doing telephone canvassing of uh, the by-election seats. And they were amazed at in Selby, number one issue. Well, there was cost of living, obviously, which is a huge issue. Number one issue that came up after that was the small boats now, given that's North Yorkshire and you would expect it to be an issue for people on, on the South Coast, it does show how much this whole debate has permeated right across the country. So the Tories, as Poppy says, are going to keep banging that drum. What I think was the biggest takeaway is the Tories have clearly seen an, a fresh dividing line when it comes to net zero policies and the green agenda. And they are trying to align it with people's concerns about cost of living and that is something that they're going to start hammering more and more Mm. i think now they're going to turn around and say listen we're going to have a look at all of the net zero commitments that we've made and if they aren't pragmatic or if they might put too much um of an onerous uh weight on people's wallets then we're going to junk them so that will then become a real kind of battleground between Labour and the Tories, I think. Interesting. Well, there's another player in all of this who we haven't spoken about yet, and that's the Lib Dems, who obviously also had a very good day in the by-elections and celebrated with one of their statement stunts, I think, which we've grown to (laughs) know and love from the Lib Dems now. canon this time, yeah. (laughs) Have some suggestions that they've opened up what's being called a Western Front, which is a Lib Dem resurgence in sort of West Country strongholds. What's your read on how it went for them and what we could be seeing from them next? Yeah, with the Lib Dems, I mean, traditionally, obviously, the Southwest has always been somewhere where they've, they've done well. And they, the one thing that people say about the Lib Dems, they've always got a fantastic ground game. And they do. They, you know, they manage to pour out activists and they really, really hammer the doorstep and things like that. And that was shown again in, in Somerton. When it comes to resurgence and whether or not they're going to capitalise on this, one thing it's worth pointing out is Mid-Bedfordshire didn't happen which is the Nadine Dorry seat, they weren't having to fight on more than one front. So they were able to just concentrate so, all their efforts mm. onto Somerton and Froome. So that made a big, big difference for them. They didn't put anything up for Uxbridge, really. So that allowed them to just concentrate all their efforts, all their time on, on winning this seat. And they and they did it with, with aplomb. On that, could we be expecting to see in the general election the Lib Dems or Labour standing down to allow the other one to sort of take precedent, that classic sort of Lib Lab pact, sort of informal, not splitting the anti-Tory vote. Is that something that we're predicting 
following the by-elections? Lib lab love, as it's now known. <laughs> well, you know, both sides have sort of formally ruled out an official pact, but that's not to say that we won't see lots of tactical voting on the ground. And that happened in the Somerton and Froome election where, by all accounts, the Lib Dem candidate, Sarah Dyke, was seen as sort of maybe quite weak on local issues. She walked out of the Guardian's politics podcast with John Harris because she wasn't able to answer why there are pockets of deprivation in the area, which pretty is quite basic a pretty question. basic yeah. question. Yeah, and, you know, as the interview was saying, you're going to face a lot harder questions if you're an MP, <laughs> which she now is. So I think that signalled that, as many people have said after the fact, that you know there was a lot of sort of organic tactical voting that was going on, not necessarily pre-thought out, but just... Voters in the area were thinking, right, we're so sick of the Tories. How do we get rid of them? Looks like the Lib Dems are more likely to win. We'll vote Lib Dems rather than a sort of organised tactical voting of, you know, I'm not going to vote Labour because of this. It's more sort of a latent idea of tactical voting. And polling experts are expecting that to happen across the region and across the national scale towards the general election, but less of a sort of organised organised thing. And, you know, as they've also said, parties don't spend any money campaigning where they don't think they're genuinely going to win. So this isn't going to be a concerted campaign of Labour spending loads of money, you know, to drive up their vote in areas where they're not going, they have no chance of winning. Yeah, it doesn't make financial sense. Exactly. Um, But we will see it happening. One thing which you always have to be wary of, though, whenever it comes to a general election and a party does think that they're going to start winning big, they begin to get a bit greedy and they think, mm. well, actually, maybe we can just nick that seat off the Lib Dems here and maybe we could go for them there as well. So another thing that's always worth pointing out that for some people in the Labour Party, they actually hate the Lib Dems more than they hate the Tories. <laughs> so if they could steal some more of uh, the Lib Dems seats, then that wouldn't be a bad thing in their eyes. So always, always have that in mind. So maybe there's a bit of Lib Lab hate as well. Keen to take you guys north of the border to Scotland. We've heard from our Scotland editor, Chris Green. This is what he had to say on the matter. So the big question in Scotland that the next general election is likely to be how far Labour can push the SNP and how many seats they can take off them after quite a few years now of very poor results for Labour north of the border. The Selby by-election last week will give them a bit of hope and a bit of heart because it suggests that you know big swings are possible around the UK. Whether or not that will be replicated in Scotland is another question, obviously, but it will give them a bit of campaigning hope for the next few weeks. They have potentially got a by-election coming up in Scotland. If the recall petition in Rutherglen and Hamilton West, which is Margaret Ferrier's constituency, succeeds, um, that will trigger a by-election, which will probably happen later this year in Scotland. So that could give more of an indication of how well Labour are doing. And from the SNP's point of view, they basically need to stop them in their tracks and do whatever they can to cease the march north of the border. So speaking to various Labour figures, they have been saying for quite some time actually that the most important by-election for them at least is and also for the by extension for the conservatives is not any of the by-elections that we just had or the two which are supposed to be coming up south of the border it is margaret ferrier's seat should she lose the uh, recall petition which is is currently underway at the moment because what it will mean is if Labour regain that seat, which was for many years a Labour seat, if they're able to take that from the SNP, that then does start to pave a road for Labour to taking potentially 15 to 20 seats. That would then be seismic for the Labour Party because 
you would no longer need, if you're Keir Starmer, a polling lead of whatever it is now, 18, 20 points just before a general election. You could bring it right back down to seven, eight points and you're looking at majority territory. So for Labour, all eyes will be on whether or not, A, first, she loses the recall petition, and then B, do voters in that area want to give the SNP a proper shoeing or do they actually like what Anasawa and Keir Starmer are, are offering as an alternative? I'm not in the position to try and guess which way they're going to go, but it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. Our team of political reporters and commentators bring you the latest updates from Westminster and around the country, sharing incisive news, features and analysis. To get the full story for half the price try out a subscription to the iWeekend newspaper plus unlimited access to our website for just £59.99 for an entire year. That's 12 months of award-winning journalism for half the price. And if you like it, you'll get another £30 off next year's subscription. To sign up and save this summer, head over to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast. I, for Open Minds, subscribe today. We've talked a lot about what's going on in the minds of Labour HQ, but I'm also keen to have a look behind that famous black door in number 10. Rishi Sunak saying this election isn't a done deal. Lots of his MPs seem to disagree. Look, Westminster has been acting like the next election's a done deal. The Labour Party's been acting like it's a done deal. The people of Uxbridge just told all of them that it's not. Now, no one expected us to win here but Steve's victory demonstrates that when confronted with the actual reality of the Labour Party when there's an actual choice on a matter of substance at stake people vote Conservative. Where do you guys lie on this? I think it's still looking very 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 however many varies you want to put in there bleak for Rishi Sunak and the Tories. I mean We are potentially still 18 months, but it seems unlikely, a year away from a general election. The old adage is, you know, a year, a month, a week is a long time in politics. So anything could happen. If things start to turn with the economy, then yes, maybe he might be able to start demonstrating, I'm the guy to take us through this tough time. But even if things, and this is the case against, even if things do start to turn in his favour, we're never going to see the interest rates going back down to what they were pre-whenever it was, certainly the Ukraine war. We're not going to see cheap money. We are still going to see inflation a lot higher than what it was previously. And I think I read somewhere that there are still a million people due to come off their fixed-term mortgages with what are now astronomically higher interest rates. So I still think people are going to be feeling like they're in a bad place. Mm. And when that general election comes by, I think it's going to be very, very tricky for him to say, you know, change is worse, stick with me. And beyond the economy, I mean, his five pledges don't seem to be going all that well. I think it'd be fair to say I cover migration a lot. Stop the boats is a big part of what I look at. And there doesn't seem to be far fewer boats stopping coming to the UK. That's definitely been a point of contention for them. Poppy, how much are they going to suffer on the back of what could potentially transpire to be kind of broken promises? Yeah, I think it's a really difficult one for Rishi Sunak because he had to usher in this period of calm 
and cool and collected after, mm-hmm. you know, the tumult of Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. And his way of doing that is, you know, he's a pragmatist to Russia in these five key pledges for the public to judge him on. And he said repeatedly, we're not quite sure what these five pledges actually mean in action. As I mentioned with the small boats, you know, his pledge to stop the boats doesn't actually mean reduce it to zero. It means to tackle it. And he said that these will, you know, come to mean whatever the public judges them to mean. And that's a really difficult thing. Specifically on halving inflation, he set 2023 as the, the target for that. And, you know, we've recently had a bit of a boost for him. The Inflation figures went down below 8 for the first time in a while, 8%. But that said, you know, that's a hard and fast figure that if he is not reaching that by the end of 2023, he's in a difficult place. There's a lot of expectation that those five pledges were put out by him to usher in that that calm period. But now he's going to dial up the rhetoric a little bit more. Maybe there's talk of, you know, a cabinet reshuffle as soon as we get back from the summer recess to prove a sort of welcome distraction away from the, the huge political pressure on those pledges. And especially ahead of the Tory party conference at the beginning of October, where if we're not making good headway towards them, there will be a lot of questions and a lot for people to answer. And if he's got a fresh team, it takes a bit of that heat off him they can say you know well we've got a new top brass here we'll be redoubling our efforts to achieve those goals but give us a bit of time so yes it's very difficult it's, it's difficult to see so it's how some of those act against one each other especially things like slashing the nhs target how are you going to do that when you're locked in union disputes still and how are you going to drive growth in the economy when interest rates and inflation are still so high it's hard to see how those all tally up but the old political game isn't, you know, how things are actually happening on the ground. It's what people remember and what people consider the main political parties, their general view of them. If you can shift that dial a bit, then it might take the heat off him. Yeah, it's worth pointing out as well that come January, even if he does reduce inflation down to 2% again, it's still 10% plus the 2% or the 3% or whatever. So it, prices are still going to be really high, a mm. lot higher than what they were. People's wages won't have caught up with that and then as poppy says with the nhs by the winter we're going to have another winter crisis because we always do so i think it's still going to be doom and gloom for him in terms of those pledges there's a term going around long boris the idea that like long covid people just can't get over this man and that he will continue to loom very large over this party to what extent is rishi sunak's conservative party going to pay the price for his behavior so That term was used by Tory MP Steve Bryan, anticipating that the Tory party would face a triple defeat in all three by-elections and Uxbridge would go to another party other than the Tory party. I suppose he's slightly undermined by the fact that that didn't happen and Uxbridge did actually remain Tory, signalling that people aren't so up in arms about Partygate and um, want this clean cut from Boris Johnson that, you know, that seems to have happened already. And I think what it signals is that the Tory party faced a huge crisis of what it stands for and, and, and the sort of Tory sleaze re- reared its ugly head again. Rishi Sunak seems to have wiped that off a little bit. But we have to remember why these three by-elections happened in the first place. It's that the three Tory MPs were forced to resign for various reasons. He still needs to prove that there is a, a total divorce of that previous old guard. So Rishi Sunak has, I think, from his account, done a lot of the groundwork in signalling that the Tory party is now a very different party. That said, he still has a lot of support across the country and lots of people will still say that he, Rishi Sunak lacks the charisma that Boris Johnson 
saw the party stomp to a historic electoral win with and they're, they're kind of scratching their heads thinking what's Rishi Sunak going to whip out of the bag to get the party over the line you know when it's in such difficulty looking ahead of the general election he doesn't have that sort of pizzazz that Boris Johnson used to his advantage but again it also had its disadvantage and I think the party wants to step away from it the MPs want to step away from it depends what the public want. Well talking about stepping away from it we've talked about the possibility of a cabinet reshuffle which as Poppy outlined we're wondering about potentially at the end of the summer recess. Richard you've been lunching and dining and schmoozing with all the cabinet ministers I'm sure. What's your bet who's in and who's out? I had a long chat after the 1922 committee meeting last Wednesday, which is the committee of backbenchers. They listened to Rishi Sunak. And I was having a long chat with some MPs after that. And their main questions were, why is Kemi Badenoch still in? They find her too divisive, too much, as they say, constantly on leadership manoeuvres. In fact, there's a piece in the papers today where she's had to say I'm not on manoeuvres it's people briefing against me but so there's question marks over her there's perennial question marks over Suella Braverman because obviously she's very very divisive there are questions of basically Ben Wallace is leaving he said he's going to step down at the next reshuffle so therefore there are questions as who will fill his place and what a lot of MPs want to see are the the better communicators in the cabinet having more prominent roles. So there's talk of James Cleverly, who's seen as one of the best communicators in the cabinet, being moved to defence, because obviously that's a very prominent role now with the Ukraine war. People want to see Penny Mordaunt given a more prominent After role. After the sword, the coronation sword. That impressive 55-minute <laughs> sword-wielding prowess. Um, so they want to see more of her, although they did say she's not an amazing minister, they said she's fantastic on the airwaves, so give her a more prominent job. And then you just you're into the kind of usual musical chairs. People want their favourites. They're people yeah. closer to the limelight. Who it will be? Anyone's guess. And while we're on the subject of of putting bets down, when's the next general election going to be? I want a specific day that <laughs> I can then hold you to. <laughs> If I were a betting man, I still think an autumn general election, so therefore late October, early November, is better because it gives the government more time to start reaping any potential benefits from uh, the economy turning. I tend to agree with Richard, and I will not be putting my name to a date. <laughs> I just want to throw out a curveball, though, just so we've covered it off in case it happens, is that some Labour sources are sort of predicting that the Tory party might throw a huge spanner in the works and call a general election for as early as something like May next year, where they've reset the cabinet in September. We go into the conference season in October. Everybody sets out their stall of what's going to happen. Rishi Sunak amps up the rhetoric on things like small boats, throws out a few attack lines against Starmer, especially on things like net zero and the cost of living. And before Starmer has the time to sort of assess and, and defend himself, suddenly we're in general election mode. I don't think that's going to happen, but it is being talked about on the sidelines as a potential. And, you know, we have to remember that anything can happen in politics. And we've got this wide period of less than 18 months now. And it's really any time in that period that a general election could be called. Well, if there's one thing that we've learned over the past two years, it's to expect the unexpected. You touched there, Poppy, on the cost of living crisis. And I do want to end on that because for so many voters, that is going to be their defining issue, I think. Richard, you've written extensively about this, but particularly looking at how it's now 
particularly with the mortgage issues, starting to hit middle class voters as well as perhaps lower income families. Could this be the the thing that dooms the Conservatives? Yeah, so basically, I wrote a piece last week speaking to people from Public First, which is a political strategist firm, who do lots of focus groups. And what was fascinating is they were speaking to middle class, lower middle class voters in the home counties. So real kind of true blue Tory voters. And they were very much on the fence as to whether or not they were going to vote Tory. And the reason being was because they're just, they're feeling it so badly in in their wallets. Some were saying, you know, we're having to cancel holidays. The standout line for certainly the news editors was they're no longer shopping in Waitrose. They're having to (laughs) shop in Aldi. The horror. The horror. Can you imagine exactly? But it's, it's another one of those examples of how the dial shifted, certainly against the Tories, and how much pressure people are under because of the cost of living crisis. I mean, it is affecting absolutely everyone. And I don't think it's going to end anytime soon. It's definitely not going to end anytime soon. So what kind of impact is that going to have on the Tories? The thrust of the piece was it could be annihilation for the Tories, because if you're core voter, your middle class, home counties, self-business owner, real kind of Thatcherite, doesn't see any sense in voting for you because they're up the Swanee, then where does that leave the Tories come polling day, whenever that might be? Not a good place, I would say. Well, what an exciting 18 months we have ahead of us. Thank you both so much for joining us. We'll have to get you back on in a few months time to see how many of these things have indeed come to fruition. That's all from us from today, but you can follow all of the political team's work on inews.co.uk. You can follow me on Twitter at Molly Blackall and on Instagram at molly.blackall. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week.